Comparative Media Studies graduate program. Uh, we're privileged to have Professor Sinan Moral from the Sloan School. Uh, let me note that uh, after this session, we will have a reception down on the third floor uh, in building E15 down the elevator, follow people over there. Uh, and uh, let me also note that we have a whole series of uh, presentations in the cloakroom this fall. This poster is around. Anybody wants to make sure around? So, Sinan uh, is uh, the David Austin Professor of Management at Sloan School, and he's going to be talking about social influence and the dynamics of online reputation. I'm Jim Parody. I'm one of the co-organizers of the colloquium. William Uricchio is uh, my co-organizer, and we put a lot of effort into this uh, wonderful series this fall. Uh, Sinan is a leading expert on social networks, social media, and digital strategy. Uh, he's worked closely with Facebook, Yahoo, Microsoft, and a number of other Fortune 500s. Uh, in realizing business value from social media and information technology investments. Uh, his research focuses on social contagion, chronic uh, virality, and measuring and managing how information diffusion in massive social networks, such as Twitter and Facebook, affects information worker productivity, consumer demand, and viral marketing. Uh, he's, his research has won many, many awards. If you go to his uh, page, you'll see uh, quite a record of uh, all kinds of uh, wonderful work that he's done. Uh, I should note that he's been an NSF Career Award uh, awardee, which is uh, a major uh, award for research um, that is highly competitive. And he's also been a Fulbright Scholar uh, chief scientists on the board of directors of Social Amp, and so on. So I'll let you go to his webpage. And read that, <laughs> but uh, he's here to talk to us on a subject of uh, great interest in the program. And I simply want to make a plug for CMS and Sloan School uh, more interaction because I think these two entities have a lot to say to each other. And uh, they're both at MIT and literally a few hundred yards uh, apart from each other. So without further Thank ado, you. Sinan. Thank you, guys. So thanks. Thanks. Um, so it's a huge honor to be here, and I mean that with all sincerity because, um, you know, like this is one of the finest institutions in the world, and when it comes to studying technology and its effects on society, I can't imagine uh, a better place uh, or a more active intellectual space than MIT. There's just so much going on here, and, you know, uh, I am a product of MIT, so I got my PhD here, and before I came to MIT, it was my dream to be a student at MIT, like most of you guys are. I would never have imagined that I'd be sitting here as a professor at MIT when I was filling out those applications a long time ago. So I actually take every day that I spend on this campus very seriously and also very uh, sort of, it's very important to me um, as an individual. It means a lot to me. Um, it's also an honor to be here because um, having uh, really looked into uh, a lot of the things that are going on in CMS, I'm just blown away by 
Um, so much amazing research, so many really interesting questions and projects at the you know cutting edge of a lot of the intersection of technology and society. And so I completely agree with this idea of more interaction. Um, what I'd like to talk about today uh, really is um, what I consider to be something that's a, a fundamental uh, uh, basic science. I don't really want to, um, and my, you know, the, the Sloan, when you're trying to get tenure in a business school, it's important to emphasize in your packet that you have business-related topics of interest. So when, when, uh, when, when you are uh, doing the research that I do, you want to highlight or, uh, you know, put at the forefront things like consumer demand and information worker productivity and so on, all of which I do research on. But really what I cons- I teach a, a PhD course on applied network theory and analysis and really what I consider uh, what I, I consider what I do to be a fundamental basic science. So what I will describe to you um, is uh, a, a series of projects that have to do with um, products and things like that and then also a series of projects that have to do with HIV testing in South Africa, violence de-escalation around election violence in Kenya, voter mobilization, uh, health and human behavior, and so on and so forth. So the types of research that I do really pertain to any type of social interaction. So let me give you a bit of a sense for the basic thing that I'm working on, which is peer effects. Okay? Peer effects simply means how does the behaviors, opinions, or you know, vocalized behaviors or opinions of an individual affect the behaviors or opinions of their social circle, their friends, their colleagues, their family, and so on. It can apply to any type of situation. So, for instance, my one-year-old son is started school for the first day you know, this week going to daycare. And you might ask yourself, well, how do the educational outcomes of my child Uh, how are they affected by the behaviors of his peer group, the people in his class, how they behave, how they learn. Um, You might be interested, for instance, in how the productivity of an individual in an organization is affected by the productivity of those around them. You might be interested in how someone's political beliefs are affected by the people that they come into contact with and so on and so forth. So we're really talking about peer effects. And in particular, we're talking about social influence. So we're talking about how one person's behavior influences or changes another person's behavior. And I believe that this is uh, uh, a really fundamental science because I think that this is the most fundamental data generating process in the social sciences, period. And that's a pretty bold statement. But in my opinion, this is what makes social science social. This is the part of the social that is the interaction between people that creates emergent patterns of behavior in society and or affects people's belief systems and so on and so forth. It's about how we interact with one another. Obviously, I haven't even mentioned technology yet. So I believe that this is about human beings and how they interact with one another. And when we talk about social influence and how people influence one another, um, I'm also a pragmatist. So I believe in the practical applications of this research. So it's important for, for instance, predicting behavior. If you understand how social influence operates inside of a dynamic population that's evolving over time, you can predict better how 
people are going to behave, how people are going to vote, how people are going to adopt solar cells or take an HIV test or commit an act of violence, uh, etc. And when I get to the violence, I'll explain to you why it's so um, uh, important because you can really think about violence as a communicable disease. It's a social phenomenon. Not only is it important for predicting behavior, but it's important for understanding behavior change. How one person's behavior cascades through a population will help you understand what the best way to intervene in that population is. Let's say that adopting solar cell, getting people to adopt solar cells and put them on their roof is what you want to uh, sort of create in society as a policy intervention. The question is, how do you propagate this behavior from person to person? How do you uh, encourage people to talk about this and get people to... Um, collectively think about uh, adopting a certain behavior like solar cells or HIV testing. These two things are very different because one of them is about thinking about how people will behave when you don't intervene. The other one is thinking about, well, given some sort of behavior change, how can I intervene to alter the way that people are going to behave? I had a doctor who said, um, you know, a, a, a general practitioner who said, I'm not really a, a scientific professional. I'm a behavior change agent. My primary job is to get people to change their behavior, to eat better, to exercise more, and so on and so forth. And so these types of interventions can really have impacts on health and, and other things. Now, the key difference in these two things, prediction and inferring behavior change is causal inference. So really being able to understand how your intervention creates or causes a change in behavior requires you to have causal estimates or understanding or models of how that behavior evolves in society. Um, and this talk is really going to be about how that causal inference is front and center of any real understanding of how behavior spreads in a society. Now, if you do not have causal estimates of the phenomenon that you're interested in, you can be drawn to ask completely wrong questions about what's going on in your phenomenon. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So for instance, if you're not concerned with causality, you might, looking at data, ask questions like this one. Is Facebook driving the Greek debt crisis? This is clear from this evidence, right? These two things are moving in complete lockstep. As one goes up, the other goes up. There's a clear relationship there. Or for instance, did use of the baby name Ava cause the U.S. housing bubble, right? I mean, it's clear from this, from this chart that these things are, are moving in lockstep. Or my favorite one, would M. Night Shyamalan start making good movies again if people bought more newspapers, right? <laughs> if I could just get people to buy more newspapers, M. Night Shyamalan would start making good movies. I mean, these are absurd examples, but these are the types of mistakes that policymakers uh, and, and academics even make consistently. Okay? And what does that mean for social influence and, and behavior change? Well, 
In networks, and in network science, this is a well-known problem known as the reflection problem. And what that means is that we already know, we have abundant evidence that human behaviors tend to cluster in network space and in time. That means that people who are connected to one another as friends, as family members, as co-workers, tend to adopt the same behaviors at approximately the same time in almost every network data set you will ever find. And the question is, is this because of peer influence, one person influencing their peer to change their behavior, or are there some alternative explanations? And I'll give you one example of an alternative explanation, um, and that is homophily. How many people here know what homophily is? Okay, excellent. Homophily just means birds of a feather flock together. We tend to make friends with people who are like ourselves. So our friends tend to have similar preferences as we do. They're interested in the same types of books, the same types of television shows. If I am really into exercise, I will have lots of friends that are really into exercise. If I'm really into food like I am, I will tend to have lots of friends who are really into food. And so those correlations in the network that two people will be running a lot at approximately the same time may not be because I influenced my friend to run more. It may be because two people who tend to want to run a lot are more likely to choose to be friends with one another, and that can create the spurious correlation in the data. Another example of something that might uh, create that correlation is what's known as confounding factors. And the uh, renowned sociologist Max Weber said, you know, if you see a crowd of people all put up their umbrellas at the same time, you don't assume social influence is responsible, but all too often we make this mistake in social network data. It's not that one person is saying, hey, psst, open your umbrella, and then that person opens it, and then that person, it's probably a shower that's passing over the field over a certain period of time, and people are saying, oh, I'm getting rained on, and I'm going to, and this is correlated exposure to the rain. But in the same way, if we have similar preferences to our friends, we're going to watch the same TV shows, listen to the same radio uh, um, you know, shows, and we're going to have correlated exposure, for instance, to ideas, or correlated exposure to advertising, which can get us to change our behavior in a correlated way, not because one friend is convincing the other to change their behavior, but because of this confounding uh, correlated exposure to extra stimuli. So let me describe uh, a few uh, examples of uh, research that we've done that tries to uh, get at this difference uh, to give you a sense for uh, why it matters. So first let me tell the story of um, uh, a project that we did with Yahoo where we took a data set of 30 million individuals who were interacting on Instant Messenger and we combined that with detailed geographic and demographic data about those same 30 million individuals and we combined that with 90 billion page views of content that they looked at online, which was a proxy for their preferences, for what types of things they were interested in and what type of content. And Yahoo launched a product called Yahoo Go, which was a personalized news and weather service for your mobile phone. So you adopted it, you logged in, and you got weather for your area, you got news on topics you were interested in, you got stock quotes for things that you were interested in, and so on. And what they wanted to know is, Sinan, as this product diffuses through the population, how can we know whether peer influence or um, alternatively, you know, these confounding factors are driving this adoption? So uh, we did a, a sort of naive uh, model estimation where we looked at um, 
peer influence in the adoption of this product. And what we found was that influence with this naive model showed very strong uh, sort of peer effects. In other words, people who had friends who adopted this product were much more likely to adopt the product. And in fact, the curve that we found looked something like this. In the first three weeks of adoption, if you had a friend or friends who, were, who had adopted the product already, you, by our naive estimates, you were 16 times more likely to adopt the product. Okay? And then the curve sort of fell from there to six weeks out to you know, eight weeks out and so on. And then it achieved a steady state of about 3x. You were three times more likely to adopt the product if you had a friend or friends who adopted it six months out. Okay? Then we developed a, uh, an estimation technique called dynamic match sample estimation. I won't bore you with the econometric details. But this is designed to hold confounding factors and homophily and all of these other things constant. And when we estimated it using this more sophisticated model, what we found was that Influence was absolutely flat at 3x during the entire life cycle of the product. So one curve went like this, 16x to 3x, and the other curve was straight, 3x from day one to six months after the product was launched. Okay? Why is that important? Well, if I am a policymaker, in this case a business policymaker, in this case the chief marketing officer, say, of this company, and a data scientist comes to me and says, look at the influence graph. It's clear that influence is very strong during the early part of the product life cycle. In the first three weeks, social influence is the key to how this thing gets adopted. Later on, it's not so important. Okay? Well, I might say to myself, as a smart chief marketing officer, I might say, well, that means in the first part of the product life cycle, we want a different marketing strategy. We want peer-to-peer -peer interventions. Maybe we want to give people discounts for bringing their friends uh, to the product. Has anyone seen the direct TV advertising, turn your friends into Benjamins, and their head turns into Benjamin Franklin? You get $100 for bringing them to direct TV. Maybe we want to do that, because influence is really important at the beginning. And then later, we just want to do a traditional market segmentation approach and, and, and target advertising to people who are likely to listen. Uh, but we want these two strategies. And if you were to make that decision, you should be fired because you are making a wrong decision based on wrong data. And your chief scientist should also be fired for giving you the wrong evidence. Because if you look at the, the curve, it's flat throughout. So the same strategy should be applied. And social influence is not as important as you would think it was with the naive model. The point of that is only to point out that how you intervene to change the behavior first takes as an input how you understand the behavior to be uh, occurring in the dynamic system to begin with. Those types of errors can make a huge difference in success or failure, for instance, in this case, of the product. Now that study was interesting, uh, and we were happy with it. We published it in a, in a nice journal, and it got good feedback. But we wanted to go further, and we wanted to go further in two specific ways. So we wanted to ask a more detailed question, which is, can we design the technology the interactive features of the technology itself so that it's more likely to be virally shared? And can we, instead of trying to apply some fancy econometrics uh, to this data, can we do something much more simple and powerful, which is to run a randomized experiment which is really the gold standard of causal inference in statistics. So we did that in collaboration with Facebook to test this idea we had of viral product design. Can you design the product in a way that's more likely 
to be virally shared amongst consumers of the product. So what we did was we worked with a company that was releasing a movie application, which was basically an application uh, designed about the movie industry. You could, sort of like Rotten Tomatoes, you could look up movies, you could read reviews, you could see other people's ratings of the movies, you could buy tickets together with your friends to go to the movies, and so on. And they were planning to release this application on Facebook, and we said, okay, stop. Before you release this application, let's design three different versions of it with progressively greater and greater numbers of viral features in the application. Let's release these three different versions of it into the wild, and let's run a horse race and see how they diffuse through the population from person to person, and measure which ones generate more viral sharing as a function of these features. And let's randomly assign each version to somebody when they come to adopt the product. You come to adopt the product, I randomly give you version 2. You come to adopt the product, I randomly give you version 3. And this way we know that there are no differences statistically in expectation between people who are using one version versus the other, and we can attribute all of the difference in the spread to the features, which are the only difference in the application. So we have this control group and this experimental group. The uh, control group, the experimental group user has three friends, and these lines are solid, indicating that those viral channels are turned on, and I'll describe those viral channels in a minute. The control group user there has also three friends. Those lines are dashed just to mean that we've turned those channels off between those two individuals. So what this does is it allows us to observe a randomized trial of the adoption and use of the application by friends of the control and experimental group users. How is this different from a normal randomized experiment? Well, in a normal randomized experiment, like an FDA test of a drug's efficacy, you would give some people the drug and some people a sugar pill, and you would look at the differences in their behavior or their health. Right? In this case, what we're doing is we're treating this person over here, and we're not examining her behavior. We're looking at the behavior of her friends as a function of giving her something different, which creates some statistical challenges but, and is also a new way of doing experiments in a network. But it really gets at this causal effect of how her experience is going to change the behavior of her friend's experience. If she has access to this feature, how are her friends going to behave differently? Now, the two features that we played with were invitation privileges and passive broadcast notifications. So invitations were, people who got the invitation version had buttons throughout the application where you could click invite. It would show you a list of your Facebook friends. You could scroll through and pick who you wanted to invite. And then it would send a message. You would say invite. You could write a personalized message, hit invite. And it would send them a personalized message that says, hey, Sinom wanted you to know about this application. Here's a link. You might want to download it. And you've chosen who to send that message to. Passive broadcast notifications, on the other hand, were automated. So every time you took an action on the application, for instance, you rated Terminator 2, three out of five stars, it would automatically send a message to your Facebook friends that said, hey, Sinon just rated Terminator 2, three out of five stars on this application. You might be interested in adopting this application. Here you go. And this is not directed at individuals chosen by you. It's to everyone in your Facebook network. Okay? So how did they fare? Well, it turns out that personal invitations were about three times as effective as the passive awareness messages in terms of generating adoption by the recipient. And personal invitations nearly doubled the global diffusion of the product in the population. And at this point, we were like, oh, yeah. 
personalized invitations are the way to go. They're more effective. They nearly generate a doubling. But it turned out that the passive awareness campaign created much more adoption than the, than the personal invitations. And you might, you know, think for half a second as to why that's happening, but it's clear. Even though each message is more effective, there are many, many, many more messages in this camp which generates more adoptions even though each message is less effective at generating a conversion. So you say, oh, Sinan, you know, you fooled me once. You fooled me to oh, you can't fool me again. Yeah. So um, then you say, oh, okay, now I know that the passive awareness campaign is the way to go. But it turns out that the personal invitations generate reliable, sticky engagement with the application, whereas the passive awareness does not. And we looked into, statistically, why this was the case, and it turns out that it's true because of what economists call local network externalities. And what that means is that the value to you of this product is a function of the number of your personal friends who use it, okay? And that's true of the people that you care about, but not true about some random Facebook person on your Facebook page. Why? Because I care about the ratings of my specific friends that I care about. I care less about the ratings of people on my Facebook page I might not have talked to in 10 years. I care more about going to the movies with my close friends than I do organizing a movie night with someone I haven't talked to in 10 years. I care more about, and so on and so forth. So the presence of someone I care about on the application encourages me to stay with the application. The presence of a random person from my Facebook page does not. And that's why you get this difference. Now, um, and this can generate different strategies, right? So Harvard Business Review did a two-page spread on this, and they came up with some really nice graphics and some really nice sort of takeaways. And, and the basic point was that the passive broadcast notifications generate Explosive growth to a heterogeneous population, but greater churn and less engagement. So broader awareness and explosive growth. The other campaign generates smaller growth to a more homogeneous population, but a sticky, loyal, engaged set of consumers. Different goals for different features. Now, we wanted to go a little bit further. So in the next paper, what we were interested in is instead of focusing on the level of the product itself and what features you can add to the product, can we devise measures of the individual influence or susceptibility to influence of the people in this network? And I should say, for all of these experiments, we have about 12 million people uh, participating in these, uh, in these experiments. So what we did to try and measure influence and susceptibility to influence, and we published this one in Science, is that we randomized receipt of the passive notifications. So here's uh, Sinan. He rates Terminator 2 three out of five stars. That should go in a normal context to all of his Facebook friends. And what we did was we randomly blocked some of those messages. So only a randomly selected subset of my friends would receive a passive viral message. Why did we do this and where does this get us? Well, if I have a group of friends, say everyone in this front row, then I would normally send a message to all my friends. But if I randomly block some of those messages, I will have two individuals who are friends of mine, both male, one who received the message randomly and one who didn't. So I could see how much for men does it increase the likelihood of adoption for receiving this message. 
then I can do that for two women, and I can say, okay, how much more does a message from Sinan to a male friend increase a male friend's likelihood of adoption? How much more does a message from Sinan to a female friend increase a female friend's likelihood of adoption? How much more or less influential is Sinan over his male friends than his female friends? And you can do that for any fill-in-the-blank characteristic about that person. Geography, age, race, gender, and so on and so forth. Then you can aggregate all that up to the level of the population, and you can say, how influential are women over men? How influential are women over other women? And so on and so forth for any characteristic. Okay? And so, what did we find? I will just give you one teaser result, and then I'll show you some aggregates. This is your susceptibility to influence as a function of your relationship status on Facebook, which is that you label yourself as single, in a relationship, engaged, married, or it's complicated. So single people are more susceptible to peer influence than people who don't report their relationship status on Facebook. That's the holdout group here against which all of these are being compared. You can also do comparisons between as well. People who are in a relationship are even more uh, susceptible to peer influence than people who are single. People who are engaged are even more susceptible to peer influence than people in a relationship. And people who are married are apparently not susceptible to peer influence at all. (laughs) If you label yourself as it's complicated, you will do anything anyone tells you on Facebook. (laughs) So I was presenting these results and... um, and my friends at a conference, and my friend Sanjeev Goyal of Cambridge stood up and he said, Sinan, this makes perfect sense. He's like, as you get deeper and deeper into a relationship, you become one with that person, and you start making decisions together, and you're a unit, you know? And he says, let me put it to you this way. I wouldn't do anything without asking my wife first. So that explains that result, apparently. Once you have these individual level estimates of influence and susceptibility to influence, you can do some really amazing analysis. For instance, you can map how influence and susceptibility to influence are distributed over the network. For instance, do influentials cluster in one part of the network and susceptible somewhere else? Are influential people surrounded by susceptible friends? Is that why they're influential? How does influence and susceptibility trade off in an individual? So that top graph up there is your influence on the y-axis mapped against your susceptibility to influence on the x-axis. And if you look all the way at the top of the y at that 2.5 and go all the way across to that dark spot in the top right corner, you'll notice that people who are highly influential are not likely to be susceptible. In other words, there are very few people who are both highly influential and highly susceptible. Dark means low prevalence. White hot means lots of people here in this part of the Uh, of the graph. So people who are highly susceptible are also less likely to be influential and you see this sort of curved trade-off. The more influential you are, the less susceptible to influence you are. You also see down here you can do some other interesting things like here is your influence mapped against your friend's influence. And we find that in this case there are people who are above average in influence who have friends who are themselves above average in influence. This could be a really good set of people to target to spread 
the message even further. The one thing you have to really simulate to get this right is these people will also be less susceptible to influence. So uh, it becomes a little bit more complex, but you can get at these types of um, uh, analyses. So everything that I've been talking about so far has been about behaviors, actions that people are taking, adoption of a product or passing a message and so on. How about beliefs or ideologies or opinions that we hold? Well, I, uh, I got this idea for this study because I went to a restaurant in New York and um, it was called Dojo. And I, I liked the restaurant, but I sort of, you know, didn't love it. Um, the food was pretty good, you know, the prices were pretty good, it was overall a good experience, the service, and so on, and I wanted to rate this thing on Yelp, and I was thinking in my mind, okay, yeah, this is like a three, three out of five stars, about middling, right? So I went to Yelp, and you can see I'm logged in there at the top, and I go to put in my rating of Yelp uh, here, and I find this uh, other user, Char H., with a bright red five-star rating, waxing poetic about the you know, amazing prices and the fresh and amazing sweet and tart ginger dressing. And I read this right before I'm going to review this thing. And I'm like, you know what? She has a point. Uh, <laughs> I remember that dressing was pretty good. And the prices given New York are pretty good. So I gave the thing a four instead of a three. And then I said to myself, okay, this is not good. Because this website is supposed to be aggregating the independent opinion of the population and showing me what the real opinion of everyone is about this restaurant. But if everyone is going through this experience, then how does this aggregation process accurately describe what is going on in terms of people's opinions? So the real problem here is, again, causality. Uh, the reason is because what we want to understand is how a current rating what the current people who have rated our rating, would affect someone's future rating, right? Because I know what the current rating is. Does that have feedback loop effects and create some sort of dynamic process? But the problem is that there could be a lot of things that push both of these at the same time, like quality. Things that have been rated highly in the past because they're good are also likely to be rated highly in the future because they're good. And that's going to create this correlation, this path dependence in ratings that depend on characteristics of the item that are being rated, right? So what we have to do is we have to perturb this system in some way. And so what we did was we did another experiment. And what we did was we essentially manipulated the initial rating. So we went on a website like Reddit and we randomly positively voted and negatively voted items as soon as they were born. The first time, as, as they were born, we randomly gave some things a thumbs up, some things a thumbs down, and some things we left alone as the control group. We did this uh, in collaboration with the website so we could do it before anyone else saw uh, the item. And the results were quite dramatic and scary. <laughs> Here's what we found. So a single random positive vote at the beginning of the voting process created a 25% increase in the mean rating of the item, which means that that one vote, and these things are getting thousands of votes at the end of their, you know, or, or even after you know, a period of several weeks, okay? 25% increase in mean ratings. That is a huge tick from a single vote. What was going on under the hood? Well, it turns out that 
This is the positive manipulation. This is the negative manipulation. And this is the control. The positive, the, the, the top two bar graphs are your likelihood to upvote. And the bottom two bar graphs are your likelihood to downvote. And what happens is, yes, upvoting is affected by a positive manipulation. You are more likely to upvote. If you see, if we positively manipulated the item, the next person that sees it is more likely to upvote than if we didn't manipulate the item, and that's what creates the increase in ratings. On the negative side, yes, you are slightly more likely to downvote if we negatively manipulated the item, but that's uh, completely overwhelmed by your likelihood to upvote upon seeing a negatively manipulated item. And that's what we call a correction effect. And what that means is that when people see a negatively manipulated item, they're more likely to be skeptical and say, oh, that, that's not right. That, that, that shouldn't be a negative vote. I'm going to go in and correct that and really give what should be deserved by this item. But on the other hand, we're more likely to go along with the positive opinions of others and say, oh, you, somebody else really liked this. Maybe it's better than I thought it was. So we're skeptical about the negative votes, and, we're, and we want to correct them, and we're more likely to sort of be affected by and go along with the positive votes. Sorry, 25% increase relative to what? What's the control? So the control, so this... You can see these results. You don't even have to need. You don't need some. You don't need a model to see these. The control group is this really thin line that's randomly selected posts that we that we did nothing to. The blue one is ones that we negatively manipulated, and the red one you just see that the entire distribution has shifted to the right. Those are the ones that we negatively manipulated. That's relative to another randomly selected set of posts that we did nothing to. So the mean and the blue is the same, but the distribution is... Yes. It's skewed slightly, to, it's skewed slightly negative, mm -hmm. um, but the mean is the same. Exactly. Exactly. And you can see the red, the distribution of the red is just sort of wholesale shifted to the right. Other questions? Okay. What this creates when you look down the road is a superstar effect because this positive herding rate, uh, snowballs into rating stardom. What do I mean by that? Well, you're 30% more likely to exceed a score of 10 if we randomly give you one positive vote uh, at the beginning. You're 30% more likely to exceed a score of 10 than a control comment that receives nothing. And that's no uh, small feat because the average rating on the site is 1.9. So it really generates this massive sort of propulsion into the positive domain. And then the negative hurting is completely neutralized by the correction effect. So you get this asymmetric effect on opinion. All of these effects also vary by topic. So when you're talking about topics like business, culture and society, and politics, you see massive social influence bias. When you're talking about general news, economics, fun, and IT, there's no statistically significant differences. We did, in the original version of this paper, try to make some qualitative statement about how these may be more subjective and these may be more factual, and the reviewers were like... You can't say that, and at the end of the day, we agree with them. Who's to say what's subjective and what's objective? Uh, we just report that there's big variation across topic areas, and that alone is very interesting in my mind. 
We also have the social network on this website. So you can label people as friends, and you can also label people as enemies in the social network. So here's a snapshot of the largest connected component. The blue lines are friendship lines. The red lines are, um, are enemy lines. And in fact, the nodes are sized by the number of friends and enemies they have. And the treatment effects vary by these relationship types. So for friends, friends are more likely to go along with a positive manipulation on your comment. And they're more likely to come to your rescue and save you when you get downvoted. Enemies, on the other hand, there's no statistically significant effect, although it's very close that if you get a random positive, they're going to try and pull you down, although it's not statistically significant. What are the implications? Well, if you're a business, you're going to want to encourage positive customers to rate early, like true customers that really like your service, and not just rate, but rate very early in the process because they're going to have an effect on everyone that comes after them. The other really interesting thing is when you think about fraud prevention in the design of these types of websites. So um, a few uh, weeks after we published uh, these results, um, Reddit changed its website policy. And what they did was they did not display the current score of an item until some num- large number of votes had been cast, like two to three to four hundred votes. And they wrote, wrote a blog post about it, and they said, we are making this design change in order to prevent hurting in our uh, rating systems, because we know now that um, this type of initial votes will have a, um, a path-dependent effect on future votes. It can affect sales of products, stock prices, and so on, but even more interesting, uh, we published these results in 2012, and at that time you know, was the election, uh, the presidential election in the United States, and I was driving home um, listening to NPR, as I do every day, and there were poll results coming out that were predicting the election and giving Obama's approval rating and so on. And I was, had this study in my mind and I was looking listening to these poll results and I was thinking to myself, are these poll results really predicting the election? Or is the fact that massive numbers of people are hearing them over the radio right now, are they driving the election result by generating this same type of process in opinion? Now, given that what, what we've sort of seen is... Uh, opinion change as a function of social influence, what does the identity of the person mean in this context? Why is this important? Well, identity and content are intricately linked in social media, right? You typically uh, are posting things along with your name or some sort of username. It may not be the actual person, um, but some sort of persistent username in a community. Uh, These are a bunch of different examples from Reddit to Facebook to uh, Twitter. And this is really what makes social media social, is you're attaching some sort of identity, whether it's your true identity or not, to your comments and what you are saying. It's also the foundation of new social advertising. So Google last year uh, started its Friendorsements uh, campaign, which is essentially... After you do a search, you might see ratings by friends of yours, how your friends rated that particular item. That is, using social proof amongst your peer group to tell you about the opinion of your peer group to try and influence your judgment or to at least give you some uh, information that might be relevant to your judgment about that product. 
And um, it's also true about Facebook social ads. So individuals' identities are used. If you're a fan of Blockbuster, your name will be used in an advertisement to your friends. Oh, did you know that Sinan likes Blockbuster? He's liked it on Facebook. Here's a discount of $5 off your first movie. What we wanted to know was how does this identity affect how social proof and social influence change your opinion. So what we did was we did an experiment where we uh, randomly hid the identities of some people and showed the identities of other people. So for 5%, the posts were anonymous, and for the other 95%, you had the normal identity shown. And the, again, this is a problem of endogeneity or correlation and causation. Why? Because we're interested in how identity affects ratings, right, likes, replies, and shares. But it could be that it's not the identity, but the user quality that's generating that, right? So it could be that you are tending to vote down on things that I say because you see the name Sinon. Or it could be just because I write really stupid stuff. And those two things are too linked for me to distinguish. Is it my name? Or is it the fact that every time someone posts with my name, it's really stupid that is getting you to vote down what I say? So what I have to do is I have to show you things that I am posting, sometimes with my name and sometimes without, so that in expectation they're the same quality and the same everything else, and then you can isolate the effect of actually knowing who it is that's posting on ratings, likes, replies, and so on. So we had two years of data, 17 million viewer comment exposures, and so on. What did we find? Well, commenters' identities significantly change the likelihood of voting, which we call turnout, and whether you vote positive or negative, uh, and in both directions. Right. Um, so basically, what this means is that uh, how the revelation of your identity affects how often people vote for your content or whether they voted up or down depends on who you are. These are people, and this is just rank ordered by whether it's more likely to increase turnout and positivity or decrease. This is the same person. So for some people, when you show their name, people are much more likely to vote. For other people, when you show their name, people are much less likely to vote. For some people, when you show their name, people are much more likely to vote positive than they would have would have had you hidden their identity. For some people, when you show their name, it has a depreciating effect on people's likelihood of thinking good things about what you're writing. So it really is individual. It depends on who you are. It also affects uh, whether people reply to your comment as well. Now, a big question here is, is this selective turnout or opinion change? Right now, the, the thing about sort of this new era of social science, like I, believe, I personally believe we're sort of on the brink of a new revolution in our understanding of human behavior at population scale because of all this amazing data we have, because of the ability to experiment in large social systems like this. And when you have this amount of data and a real experiment randomized across millions of people, you can ask behavioral questions about the mechanisms. Why do we see the behavior that we see in this system? And here's a good example of that. So two things might be explaining these results. One could be selective turnout. 
and one could be a opinion change. Selective turnout is simply that identity cues are selecting more ratings from different populations of people. In other words, let's say this is the population of voters. Maybe 50% of the people really dislike Sinan's comments, and 50% of the people really like Sinan's comments. And showing Sinan's identity Instead of actually changing anyone's opinion, if you were to poll the entire population, the, everyone's opinion would stay the same. But now by showing Sinan's identity, a different proportion of people who like or dislike Sinan turn out to vote, and that changes the rating. No one's opinion has been changed, but the rating has changed because the composition of the voting population has changed. That's what we call selective turnout. An alternative hypothesis is actual opinion change, where the identity cue actually causes the viewer to change their opinion about the quality of the item. So the same viewer now who would have thought it was negative had they uh, known it was me, thinks it's positive when it's anonymous, okay? And it's changing their opinion. Well, we uh, looked for this as well by examining uh, individuals' prior voting on every person. So we saw what your general opinion of someone was. And then we classified them by uh, whether or not they tended to vote positively for you or negatively for you. And then we graphed here the effect of showing the identity on people who tended to think of you negatively versus people who tended to think of you positively. And what we found is that uh, when we showed the identity, it increases turnout of people who tend to think of you negatively and doesn't really change the turnout of people who tend to think of you positively, which means there's evidence for selective turnout. In other words, a different, people with a different opinion about you are more likely to vote than they would have had they not known it was you. So evidence of selective opinion change, uh, selective, turn, uh, selective turnout. But we also see evidence of opinion change because we're looking at within commenter-viewer pairs and we can see how making it anonymous, if you, know, you voted me 100 times in the past and on average you vote me a certain way, how much does your opinion about my general level of comment change when we make it anonymous? And that is an actual change from your mean opinion of my content. And what we find is evidence of opinion change. So since these are within reviewer, we can see changes in turnout and changes in positivity. And this doesn't, this examines opinion change, but it doesn't necessarily examine any variability in this treatment effect um, that could be based on the commenters' comments themselves. For instance, Sinan's viewers become more positive when Sinan writes a long comment or when Sinan writes a short comment. And we can also do that. We're in the process of doing that now. We also examined one final thing, which gets to the title of the talk, which is the dynamics of reputation over time, which is accumulating reputation. So a hypothesis a long-held hypothesis, people have, may have heard of this as the Matthew effect or the halo effect, right? Um, 
of accumulating reputation, which has been examined uh, in a number of observational studies, but this is a very large experimental study. This hypothesis says that an identity that is associated with higher ratings on previous comments increases the relative risk of identity on upvoting and decreases it for downvoting. So you'll get sort of this accumulating reputation from prior positive votes. What we did here was we computed the mean score of a commenter's previous T comments, and then we modeled the ratings probability conditions conditional on these rating states. What does that mean? Well, this is the mean cumulative score on your previous T comments. This is previous one comment, previous 10 comments, previous 100 comments. If your previous, and it's easiest to see it here and think about it here, I think. If your previous score on your last 100 comments was low, below zero or, or near zero, you'd be on this part of the graph. If it was really high, that people tend to really vote you high on your last 100 comments, you'd be over here. And this is a graph of the uh, effect of showing your identity on reply rates, your likelihood of downvoting, and your likelihood of upvoting across the spectrum of whether people over the last 100 comments saw you as very positive or very negative. So if you look at that top right graph, it shows you that people who have been rated really positively in the past are much more likely to get a higher bump from their opinion, uh, from their identity being shown than people who have been voted low in the past. That means that people are attaching a quality perception to your identity, and once that identity is shown, above and beyond what they think of the post, because they've already read it, it's identical to all the ones that were holding constant, they get an extra boost from knowing that it's from you than they would have thought had they just read that comment as an anonymous commenter. So that opinion about your comments being good is being attached to your name. And when the name is shown, it's creating an increase in their opinion about the same comment. And as you see, the opposite is true for downvotes. And it does have some effect on reply rates in the positive direction as well. So identity effects matter, and who you are matters for how identity effects matter. So rating and reply behaviors are affected by identity. Identity creates increases and decreases in turnout and positivity and increases in discourse, which depend on the identity of the poster. And both this selective turnout and opinion change drive the results. In addition, you get this Matthew effect that reputations uh, accumulate. So, I was mentioning that this is sort of what I consider to be a basic science of social influence and peer effects, how people affect the behavior of the people that they're connected to, how behaviors are contagious in society. So we have a big project, a nationwide pilot in South Africa, where we are giving people incentives to take an HIV test, which are free mobile minutes on their cell phone for taking an HIV test as well as additional free mobile minutes for every friend they convince to take an HIV test. We have multiple different versions of this policy, for instance, where you get paid more to take your own test or more to convince others to take a test, and we vary the different incentives. And what we want to understand is how can this generate peer-to-peer diffusion of the behavior of HIV testing? Why are we interested in this? Well. It turns out that, you know, 10 years ago, the official government line on HIV testing in South Africa was bathe in olive oil to get rid of your HIV, okay? So people don't really trust government messaging 
around HIV testing. The broadcast medium of television and radio spots has a certain level of effectiveness, but this top-down communication doesn't really work well. The, reason, the main reason people don't test in South Africa is stigma. Okay, So you're stigmatized if you are seen going to the testing center and taking an HIV test. However, the problem is, the, the, the potential solution is that if your friends are going with you or are talking about HIV testing and are trying to convince you to, HIV, to take an HIV test, you might be able to address some of this stigma, some of this distrust in top-down government messaging. So what we want to measure here is whether or not we can generate more HIV tests per dollar spent on this program than the governmental HTC campaign of radio spots and, uh, and television advertising. And we have a nationwide pilot that begins with with 50 million messages sent across, uh, across the entire country. We're working with Nike and Nike Plus running, right? So you put a chip in your shoe, you can measure how fast and how far you run, and then you can share that on Facebook, right? When you get, when you get on Nike Plus, you can share your run on Facebook, and if somebody likes that post on Facebook, it will cheers you in your headphones as you're running. This is absolutely technology designed to harness the power of and sort of channel peer interactions and peer influence for the purposes of socializing what would have originally been an individual event, you running by yourself in the forest, right? And the question is, how does my running behavior affect the running behavior of my friends? Is this a socially contagious behavior that we can encourage healthy uh, behaviors like exercise and so on? We're working with MTV to increase voter turnout. We're working with the New York Times to understand how a Twitter conversation, these are tweets and retweets of a particular, anybody here familiar with the Cascade project at the New York Times? Okay, so I have all of the data from Cascade and all of the page views for six months on the New York Times. And I can see how a Twitter conversation is correlated with or relates to consumption of that particular article, how it gets passed from person to person, and so on. We're working with an organization called, called Peace Text on quelling election violence in Kenya using peer-to-peer -peer messages reminding people of the consequences of this for the society and for their, um, for their families and so on. Things like helping increase the peace. Obviously, Inglewood is not in Kenya, but they have this program in multiple places. Um, and so the point of these last slides is just to conclude by saying that this is not, uh, as my uh, Sloan sort of bio would, uh, would, would indicate, not just about commerce and Facebook advertising. This is a basic science about population scale behavior change that can really be sort of a good lens and to understand how population level behavioral dynamics work and how we can create policies that encourage uh, behaviors that make our planet a better place. So thank you guys very much. I'm very happy to take many questions, so thank you. just open it up to the audience uh, but uh, just before I'm, I'm just curious yeah. about the concept of identity yes. and the content of identity and mm -hmm. you know is there anything you can say about that and does it have are there ways of uh, uh, are there metrics for it and so forth well obviously in this case um, I mean identity has been written about um, 
in so many different ways. It's a very deep concept. Um, this study does not do justice to the sort of um, deep epistemological um, lenses upon, uh, you know, that we can apply to identity. All it does is attach a name to content and examine variation in people's opinions about that content as a function of the name. Um, what we could think about is um, pairing this type of study with qualitative research to uh, ask people who might be part of this experiment how they chose their name or what their name means to them as it reflects their identity or did they use their real name or did they use some other name and how did they come to that choice and so on and so forth. We would have to do that kind of investigation to say anything meaningful about what the use of that particular name meant to the person who attached that name to the content um, and we haven't done that. I mean clearly identity in in a real situation is different from identity in a network Absolutely, it does have a kind of quantification. Whether it's good or bad, it still exists, and there is data attached to an individual. Exactly. I would say a couple of things about that. So typically... Um, I agree that it's different, but I don't think it's sort of diametrically opposed. And the reason I believe that is that I do believe that human beings tend to sort of, um, in some sense, even if it's different, uh, authentically interact in these digital social spheres. Like Facebook is a really good example. Facebook requires, first of all, that you use your real name. It's not always the case. Obviously, people lie about the different things that they fill in, their age and their gender and so on and so forth. Um, sometimes because of privacy concerns. But typically, for the majority of people, the interaction on Facebook is authentic in the sense that it is their authentic interaction on Facebook. It may not be the absolute true person behind the mask, but it is a digital representation in a space where there are social norms and social interactions and so on and so forth. So it's different but not sort of everyone on the internet could be a dog type of thing. I wouldn't, that, those days are over in my mind because we now, in the majority of these spaces, interact in some authentic fashion. Nick? Yeah. We'll go this way. So, uh, thank you. Uh, first audience question, I'll, first let me give you an upvote. So, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Everybody else's opinion has been changed. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask actually from a behavioral economic uh, sort of standpoint. Uh, thinking about things in that way, when you, when you switch to talk about AIDS testing, giving pe offering people mobile minutes and things like this, um, one of the things that you know a lot of people in behavioral economics are very much into is is figuring out how people make decisions of economic consequence, uh, and and the experiments often involve stacks of cash. Yep. You know, you can smell that will be delivered yep. to participants. You know, in various ways, and so I guess I, I'm. And I think you're, you know, you're, the projects you're looking at are these very hard-hitting life and death and uh, uh, incentivized um, sorts of uh, sorts of projects. So how does it, how does that relate to what, from even though these are, I agree, they're they're real interactions. These are the, the people are undertaking on Facebook and Reddit and so forth, but they're not the things that uh, behavioral economists would consider to be of economic consequence. Of Absolutely. Economic value. How yep. does, so how do these? Yep. Well, yes. So you can definitely think of uh, the studies that I uh, 
first showed you as being sort of of different and perhaps arguably and convincingly arguably uh, lower economic consequence. Um, however, you know, there are sort of, we do find, for instance, um, uh, reciprocity effects in a social group. So when you are known to downvote someone else or when uh, you upvote someone else, it has sort of social consequences, although it's not worth, you know, maybe $1,000 or maybe it is, right? So now you got apples and oranges. What is the economic value of a reciprocal positive friendship online versus a dollar? Well, who knows? You know, I don't know. The cost of adopting a Facebook app, my personal opinion, quite low. I don't think that that's really... Now, the point of this, the projects that are in play now, and I'll, for those of you who are doctoral students, I'll make this comment because I think it's important. Um, those are much more costly physical actions that take place in the real world. So you see that my research program is evolving towards how do we connect the digital space to real behaviors in the world out there that matter, okay? AIDS testing, violence, and so on and so forth, okay? And I think that um, uh, the results remain to be seen, but uh, part of the reason why I'm doing that is I believe it's sort of too easy to just remain in the digital space. I think the promise of this kind of science is in real behavior change for consequential things. And I'll, I'll be honest, the reason why it's happening now uh, is because pre-tenure, that type of research is quite risky. Right? Because who knows what's going to happen and who knows how long that's going to take and so on and so forth. These Facebook experiments were, took me three years to run and to write up the papers and then maybe another year to publish them. It has taken me three years just to plan the HIV study. Okay? If I started that in year one of my tenure clock, the hope of finishing by the time tenure was over is zero. That was always the ultimate goal. Along the way, we developed a lot of statistical methodology, a lot of network-based experimental design methodology, and now my goal is to really think about population-scale behavior change for behaviors that matter in ways that positively impact the world, and that's really an honest answer sort of to your question. between encouraging certain behaviors, like taking an HIV test, which is very, uh, it's, it's proactive and it's very easily measurable, versus getting people to not do things, like commit acts of violence. Absolutely. So the not do things example has to be measured in the aggregate, right? Because we have absolutely no way to observe the counterfactual of, would this person have committed election violence had they not received this message? It's not observable. So what you have to do is you have to have that policy and record the number of messages that are happening, for instance, in a region, and then have that policy not be in effect in another region, record the fact that there aren't those messages being passed, and then do sort of a difference-in-difference difference regression over time for two regions. This is a very traditional program evaluation for those of you who are econometricians or run regressions, but you can't do it in the same way as where you identify individual people and you try to, to measure the effect of not 
taking a behavior. And that is an interesting example of a design and inference problem in these types of, of studies. So basically, it begins by saying that this can have a dramatic effect on people's opinions about an item or a person or a product and so on. And this is really uh, an example of this for social messaging, right? So the idea is that in this type of space, there are these herding dynamics of how opinions are changed as a function of a particular message. The Facebook ads example Social proof, seeing a friend that you trust liking a brand will change your opinion about that brand. That's been measured now. That's the whole basis of uh, a large part of Facebook's revenue proposition is that these types of messages are more effective with social proof and so on. Um, and so it begins by showing real evidence that this type of thing uh, sort of has effects on uh, people's behavior. I don't think it should be a surprise because this has been advertising since advertising has been born. This is just sort of put in the context of, uh, of a social situation um, and how our opinions are affected by the opinions uh, of others. And what it says for policy in my mind is that in certain circumstances, um, it could be that these peer-to-peer -peer type interventions are more effective than broadcast interventions. We need to understand how it works and how it might be uh, useful for policymakers and so on. Along those same lines, have you done any comparing and contrasting with celebrity endorsements versus the people you know? So um, I have not personally, but I do have a colleague and very good friend, Duncan Watts, who has looked at um, uh, you know, whether you should pay Kim Kardashian $10,000 to tweet. Um, per tweet, yes, really that much. Um, and the answer that he comes to is no. That basically, um, uh, it you know, you can build a model and say exactly how much should you pay someone to tweet. The whole value of um, a celebrity endorsement is not because the celebrity itself is more influential on the on the people that follow them. It's that they have a broad microphone that many 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 people hear their tweets, um, and that's where their sort of economic value comes from. And couldn't it also be that before we didn't, you either had celebrity endorsements or no endorsements, and now we have a market in friend and colleague endorsements. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly what Google for endorsements and Facebook social ads are betting on. That, and in fact, when we're choosing, like when I'm choosing what stroller or what car seat to buy my child, I could care less, you know, what Ashton Kutcher thinks about that. I care about who the people that I trust who have gone through this with babies and so on have made their choice and how they came to that choice. That matters a lot more to me. Like, when I'm choosing my doctor and so on and so forth than any celebrity endorsement ever would. Uh, I was curious about the New York Times article 
York Times collaboration that you mentioned. Um, have you had the chance to look at some of the work that Brian Abelson had done? Yes. Okay. Yes. So is that is what you're doing? And from what I recall, what he had done is looked at how uh, different methods of social promotion impact um, a story uh, as it spreads through networks. But I don't know if you looked at individual, like, um, like the influence of individual people who were tweeting. So yeah. I was wondering how your research interacted with what he had looked at. Yes, so actually Brian and I were there at the same time. I was a scholar in residence at the New York Times uh, for a year and a half and just ended in August when I came back here to MIT. And, um, and uh, you can sort of consider what we're doing sort of an extension of the great work that he started. And we're really looking at um, how the, uh, the Twitter cascade uh, moves either in lockstep with or not the consumption of uh, those types of articles. So what we have in our data is all of the shortened URLs that point back to the New York Times that are used on Twitter. We have everybody who clicks on those and then pages through the New York Times. So we have session data of you clicked on a link on Twitter, you went to the New York Times, and then you read these 25 pages, and then you exited. We have that for all of the shortened URLs, as well as we have the entire Twitter cascade. So you, Paul Krugman tweeted something, then these 10 people retweeted, and then two of each of their friends retweeted. We have that whole graph as well. So the question that we're asking is, how does the word of mouth, when and how and under what conditions and under what dynamics does the word of mouth conversation drive the consumption of the times? And when uh, is the word of mouth conversation separate from the times? So a perfect example is I have this um, slide that shows uh, two, a graph, two instances of a graph where I'm juxtaposing... Um, views of that page with the Twitter cascade time-stamped exactly as they were in real time. And in some cases, what you see is bursts of Twitter activity that spike readership. Sometimes you see spikes of readership followed by bursts of Twitter activity. You can characterize the first one as Twitter is getting the word out, people are reading the article, and then they're reading and being done. The other one you could say people are maybe getting to the article because it's highlighted on the home page or it makes the, you know, some list. Once they read the article, it's inspiring a conversation on Twitter as a consequence of consuming the article. That's very different, right? So under what conditions is it a mechanism for conversing about what you've read? Under what conditions does it lead you to read the thing and then not converse or do both and so on and so forth? by looking at how articles were promoted on various forms of social media, you could actually get a good sense of how they were going to perform page views-wise. As in, like, it was almost in some ways, um, yeah. like, there was a strong relation. So I would I mean, be curious to see how the, yeah. the individual content and what is actually yeah. in the article also influences that. So he and I both agree and have had this conversation that, I mean, having listened to this ad infinitum for an hour, the question you would ask yourself is there's something specific about the ones that choo are chosen by the editorial board to be promoted. Maybe there's, 
They're choosing the best articles to tweet. That's getting a whole bunch of views. Is it because it was tweeted, or was it tweeted because the editorial board saw this as an article that is likely to be broadly applicable to people and so on? So there's a correlation causation problem there. What you'd really have to do is randomly select articles to be tweeted and then measure how much the tweet impacts the consumption, and then you get back to this whole correlation causation debate. In the very, very back. So first, uh Thanks. I did my thesis on targeted upvoting and downvoting on Reddit. Nice. Uh, and it looks like I submitted to MIT's thesis uh, like the same month you sent that to science. I only <laughs> wish I'd had it to cite in the intro. <laughs> okay. Great. Do we have the same results or? Uh, basically. Okay, great. Now we have a confirmation. Awesome. Great. So the question I had for you was <coughs> you, you also work with, um, I believe, human? Yes. Yeah. I'm the chief, chief scientist. You know, a yeah. lot of what you were talking about is the importance of the categories that are uh, available in these sites in terms of the sorts of data that you can track, right? Like in order to vary an experiment around your relationship status, you need to ask for relationship status and model certain types of relationship statuses. So in your work as a data scientist building those systems, how has that changed or affected or impacted your thinking about the sorts of data that you collect and how you model it? That's a good question. So um, <clears throat> I think it really depends on what your goal is, right? So um, <clears throat> we, so the way that I would describe, so how many people here have heard of Human, this company that he's talking about? Just one. Okay. So um, Human is a company that uh, we launched literally in the App Store a couple of weeks ago for the first time. Um, H-U-M-I-N. You can find it on the uh, App Store on Apple or on the web at human.com. Um, and basically what this is is sort of like a Google Now for your social relationships. So it's a contact manager that's designed to replace your phone. So I'll give you the two-line pitch is that 2007, Steve Jobs invented the smartphone and everything about that phone is smart except for the phone which is the same dumb phone you've always had. Your contacts are an alphabetical list of the people you know. You probably have three of every person, right? So what human does is it replaces the phone and the contacts app with a smart predictive modeling AI version of that where um, it helps you, you know, relate to the people you know, find the people you want to find. When you travel from New York to San Francisco, it says, oh, Sinan, I see that you're in San Francisco. Did you also know that Jim is in San Francisco, even though he lives in Cambridge most of the time? Maybe you want to text him and go out for drinks or, you know, so on and so forth, right? So the answer to your question, just to give people that context, is that we care about the things that are likely to help us deliver a better service. Um, and strategically, we see a lot of people who are in the social networking space as businesses are focusing on intelligence at the nodes. So Facebook wants to know everything about your preferences, what movies you like, what books you like, etc. It makes sense if you want to advertise. LinkedIn wants to know everything about your professional life, where you've worked, when you worked there, as well as how people rate your skills at machine learning or you know, project management or whatever, how good you are as a worker and different types of things. That's all about you as an individual. What we think is lacking is intelligence at the edges. So predictive modeling and data science around what this relationship means to the two people who are in it. Because that's what's going to help us deliver a better service for maintaining that relationship, communicating at the right time, and so on. Is this relationship relevant 
in the mornings or is it re relevant in the evenings? Is this relationship relevant during holidays or during work hours? Is this relationship relevant when you're in the same city or is it also relevant when you are miles apart from one another? And so your phone will start to behave in ways that match the relevance of those people to you by the way that you interact with them and so on. So the data that we're interested in um, is about how you relate to one another rather than who you are, what your preferences are, or what movies you like. We care a lot less about that. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to repeat for those of you who couldn't hear, the question was, uh, Sinan, you made a flippant joke about the susceptibility stuff. Can you say more about what those results really meant in terms of single, in a relationship, married, and so on? Especially the it's complicated, where uh, labeling yourself as that might uh, represent your willingness to um, expose more about yourself and to be more uh, sort of able to talk about those types of things um, rather than just saying you're single uh, on a website like Facebook. And my answer is that... Um, <clears throat> Uh, as a social scientist, I am very reluctant to hang, uh, you know, interpretations of these results that I can't substantiate uh, on my data. In other words, I can take that graph and tell you why I think that those results are popping up, you know, a number of different uh, reasons, but without more evidence, none of that. It would just be armchair theorizing, honestly. And that's why I'm sort of flippant about the why. It's, I can tell you a joke about why I think it might be, but I have no real evidence to support one or the other theory about why those results come up the way that, that, I, that they do. And so I don't choose to, as a scholar, put, hang my hat on or step out on a limb and say, this is why people who are saying it's complicated are behaving the way that they do. Now, if you'll let me go back into joking and uh, sort of armchair theorizing mode for a second, I think that, and by the way, another thing I should note is that, for instance, one explanation, explanations that I can rule out are the following. One explanation is that only highly engaged Facebook users who know the terminology and so on would ever label themselves as it's complicated, right? But this is a randomized experiment. So it holds constant uh, people's sort of, you know, exposure to the stimuli across different categories. It could very well be that people who label themselves as it's complicated are more susceptible because they're more engaged in Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. But we know causally that they're more likely to respond by taking the action that's requested upon receiving a message. Um, uh, there's no selection effect there. So that doesn't sort of explain the result, but any number of theories could explain why the result exists. And I think that there would have to be <clears throat> different investigations with different methods to get at those answers. And I actually think that that is a very fruitful 
set of investigations because as you saw in the uncovering the behavioral mechanisms in the voting study, I'm very interested in, well, what are the mechanisms that explain why we see these results? Sometimes we can measure those mechanisms, sometimes we can't, and I don't hang my hat on a result that isn't solid enough is sort of where I would leave Just it. Just a comment. Uh, yeah. uh, Dana Boyd's book, is, uh, new book, is uh, titled, yeah. It's Complicated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. She's going to be here later in the term. She's a good friend of mine. She's, uh, you guys are in for a treat. No words on slides, just pictures, and you guys will be mesmerized. She's great. <laughs> um, we do a, a lot of crowdfunding in Bologna. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, it's for, for another investor to come in to actually know who has invested before. But at some point, when you get like to 20% of the target, it widens it becomes relevant. You know that it's got that it's getting some tracking, and then it gets fully funded. Does it happen the same with all of the research? Like identity starts being very important, but when you have more than a number of reviews, then it's not important anymore? That's a really good question. Um, that is a really good question. That is not something we can answer with this experiment because we only have a manipulation at a certain po- point in time of the process, which is at the beginning. right? And that manipulation stays constant for the life of that post. In other words, at the beginning we decide if you're anonymous or named, and you're always anonymous or named. The only way we would be able to tease that out is if we randomly selected the point in the process at which we chose to name you or not name you, then we could determine whether doing it earlier or later has a differential effect. Um, My intuition is that we would see similar to what you see, which is that um, at first, when you only have one opinion, the opinion, whose opinion it is, matters. When you have enough opinions that it represents, in some sense, the population, you're like, well, most of the people think this is worthwhile. At the beginning, you're like, I don't know whether most of the people will think it was worthwhile. Whether it's worthwhile or not is now only evidenced by this one opinion. Well, who said that? You're more interested in who said it because that's the only opinion. That would be my guess, but you'd have to run an experiment. (laughs) It would be my answer. So going back to the sort of use of social promotion and likes and things like that, especially by companies for marketing purposes to drive sales. One of the things that that makes me think is, you know, I wonder if continuing use of that or maybe overuse of that will actually end up repressing the effect that it has. Absolutely. You know, get used to it and acclimate themselves to that kind of feedback. And I'm wondering if that's something that you're thinking about, that's something that you'd be interested in investigating, or like what your take on that is. Absolutely. It would, be, it would be highly interesting to me to know what the overall sort of dynamics of the effectiveness of this type of messaging is uh, over time. I, I, I certainly believe that there's very strong possibility that that's true. People become desensitized uh, to different types of messaging. That's been shown in other types of um, things in the past. What I will say is we do have evidence that um, once you see that one friend likes it, the second friend is marginally less influential, the third friend is less, and so on. So the curve sort of goes like this, and it, it plateaus, basically. Um, and so, and in fact, 
there is some, although not statistically significant, evidence that it actually decreases uh, after a while, only slightly. And the reason is because you're annoyed by the spammy interaction of like all of your friends talking trash about this product. But um, so over time, we haven't done any studies to, to show that. I'm sure lots of people would be interested in whether or not social ads are going to be as effective as they are today 10 years from now. I don't know the answer. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a really, really important topic and one that I take very seriously. I will make a plug for the following, which is that on October 10th and 11th, we are organizing a conference called the Conference on Digital Experimentation at MIT, Code at MIT. You can find this uh, at codecon.net. We have a number of the most sort of influential experimental economists, sociologists, and, and computer scientists at various companies and academic institutions coming to talk about this. That's a long-winded way of saying on the Friday, we have a fireside panel, um, which will include Jonathan Zittrain uh, from, the, uh, from the Berkman Center, um, Esther Dyson, the investor and entrepreneur, um, Dana couldn't make it, unfortunately. Um, she was one of the invited. Um, Cam Carey, uh, who helped President Obama establish his privacy, that's the brother to John Kerry, established his privacy uh, framework, um, as well as Duncan Watts, on a panel, a fireside panel and reception on Friday night um, in, uh, uh, at the Sloan School that is called experimentation and ethics. And the whole concept is to discuss uh, the Facebook experiment and all of the, the, the repercussions. So that's a long-winded introduction. What is my opinion? My opinion is that the benefits of experimentation f to our understanding of human behavior and the progress that social science is going to make as a result of this type of experiment is very, very large. We're going to have way more understanding of how society works as a consequence of these things. At the same time, um, there are potential risks to people who are involved in this type of experimentation. So there are laws as well as guidelines that guide academic researchers in dealing with human subjects. We have an IRB. We have a Committee on the Use of Human Subjects in Research. You have to understand what informed consent means. You have to understand what minimal risk means. And you have to design experiments that deal with informed consent, consider minimal risk, and weigh the risks and, and, and uh, benefits of an experiment in deciding what to do as an ethical researcher. In fact, that is exactly how academicians are trained to deal with human subjects, to weigh the benefits of the experiment versus the risk to the subjects and to think about informed consent. The problem is twofold. So for just as a, as a uh, footnote, all of these studies have IRB uh, oversight and approval and so on and so forth. Um, the problem is that there is no such mechanism in the private sphere. All there is is a EULA that says, you know, you agree to XYZ that nobody reads. Now, 
This notion of manipulation, in my mind, is a red herring. Okay, Because people said about the Facebook experiment, they said, you're messing with my mind, man. How on earth are you going to manipulate my emotions and think that's ethical? And to that I say, advertising. When I sell you soap with some really like buff guy in the shower, you know, that's a way to manipulate your uh, you know, opinion that maybe I'll look better if I use this soap. You know? Or if, if, if I, I'm trying to sell you a health plan, the first thing that an advertiser does is make you feel bad about your current state of health. Right? So these experiments are no different than what everybody goes through every day when they look at advertising. So to single out these researchers and say, you're unethical for manipulating my opinion, I think is really quite absurd. In fact, these types of researchers should be given more wide berth because the purpose of their investigation is to understand something and to contribute to scientific knowledge. The purpose of the more clandestine versions of advertising are to increase your likelihood to you know, give them money. Right? That does not in any way mean that ethical standards should not be applied to experiments or even non-experimental research on privacy uh, touching data about individuals. We need oversight. So what I think should happen is we should establish oversight in the private sphere. And I think that the most that there are ethical people that work for private companies. It's not as if there's a dearth of ethical people in private companies. I think that uh, what should happen is there should be IRBs created inside private organizations that track exactly what the academic organizations are doing and that both of these new institutions should learn how to deal better with the state of the world as we know it now because they're not really well equipped to understand and evaluate uh, these types of studies as they should be. Um, there needs to be an education about what minimal risk means and what informed consent means, about what is a reasonable thing to expect, uh, what is a reasonable way to define the expectations of a user on Facebook. Do most users on Facebook believe that their uh, you know, um, data is used for advertising? I bet you that most people would think that their data is used for advertising. How many people know that there's an algorithm that chooses uh, which uh, posts of other people to put in your newsfeed. Of course, they want, it's a relevance algorithm. There's an algorithm that decides what uh, you know, search results to show you when you type something into Google. Because they tweak that algorithm, is that unethical? I don't think so. Let me, with a show of hands, how many people here know that you don't see everything that people in your Facebook network post and that there's an algorithm that chooses what to show you? Okay, put your hands down. How many people know that they experiment with that algorithm in, tr in order to improve the results? Okay. So, would this proportion exist in the whole population? No. These are very educated, technologically savvy people. However, I think that that expectation is not as low as some people think. So the short answer is, ethics should be front and center of everything we do. Oversight should be front and center of everything we do. Uh, private organizations need to adopt uh, oversight processes as academics have. Both private and academic oversight institutions need to have an update uh, that, is, that 
deals with new types of data and new types of experimentation. But I don't believe that experimentation is writ large unethical. I don't believe that um, that uh, uh, the the risk to manipulation is prima facie. Uh, uh, too large to ever experiment. It depends on what you're manipulating and how that might, etc. In this case, they've made arguments, for instance, well, if you bring people's mood down, maybe someone would commit suicide. That's a very real risk that you have to consider. In considering that risk, you have to consider, well, what is the likelihood that this manipulation is going to bring someone's mood to the point of suicide, uh, absent other things, and so on. You have to do some sort of a uh, you have to have some understanding of what that risk looks like and then make a call with oversight about whether you should do the experiment. Sure. As you can tell, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> Just because our methods are ethical doesn't mean the bigger, longer-term effects might not. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about how you're, what you find out, and especially in some research like this, can be used by other people. Absolutely. So can you speak more on this ethics question? What, yes. What are some risks you Absolutely. have for your own research? Like what are the negative sides that could come? Absolutely. Great question, something I think about all the time. Uh, and, I'll, and I'll give a slightly defensive answer, which I think makes the point very, very clear. Um, this type of knowledge is a general purpose technology, just like any technology. It can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. And anybody who, who thinks that it can't is deluding themselves. And, and I'll tell you what I mean. So what I'm researching is how the promulgation of social messages affects behavior change. If that behavior change is used to change behaviors in a socially perverse way or in a way that's bad for society, that's obviously bad. Okay? But when DARPA and Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet, you know, uh, it was a technology that could do many things. One of those things is you know, child predation. Is that a reason not to invent the internet? Not really. Uh, it's a reason to think about how to police and guide use of this type of thing for good rather than bad. And that comes after learning or building uh, the thing first. So I don't think it should stop us from doing research and understanding how society works. And I think we should channel this uh, towards societal good. I think there's certainly risks that this can be used in negative ways. That should be discussed openly, policed as much as possible. Uh, norms should be formed around it, and so on and so forth. Can I control how people use this knowledge? Absolutely not. I guess my question was, I agree with you that, like, yes, we cannot stop the production of knowledge just because we think bad things might come of it, right? But when you look at your own research, and I'm excited or interested to hear about the specifics you thought of, what are potential risks? I mean, I think yeah. it's important that we think about it and then we can Oh, yeah, sure. Like sure. So, that, the issue for your own research topic. You know, as, most, as, as in most things, these, the answers to these types of questions are very complicated. So let me go to the very extreme. 
and say that um, you know an organization with really perverse ideas about what is ethical or not ethical, for instance, beheading journalists, uses this type of methodology to promulgate their opinions across society uh, and so on and so forth. Or maybe there is an individual who believes that women should have no rights in society and he obviously, uses this to promulgate that belief through society by peer-to-peer influence and so on and so forth. These are hypothetical examples of extreme scenarios in which this type of knowledge can be used to generate opinions uh, and, and behavior change in a negative way, in what I perceive to be a negative way. But if you pull that in from the extreme just a little, Okay, And I'm not going to ask anyone here whether they're a Democrat or a Republican. Somebody might say, oh, this could be you, and I'm a Democrat, but somebody could say, this could be used to promulgate democratic ideas, you know, like, and, and that's evil because I'm a Republican. Well, then it's a matter of opinion, right? And so there's lots of gray area in between, you know, lifting people out of poverty, potentially being able to be labeled as almost universally a good idea, discrimination against a particular gender or race being a bad idea, and then everything in between is sort of gradations of opinion about what's a good behavior and what's not a good behavior, right? So, yeah, yep. I think we have time for one more question. I'm uh, Sam's been performing <laughs> at a very high level, but uh, yes, one more question. I just want to say, I think that's a little, I do think that's a little bit glib to say, well, there's the, the evil discrimination and there's the, you know, Democrat, Republican. The reason I say this is that I work uh, on, I guess this is almost as much a, a statement as a question, so I'm really sorry, Jim. No but problem. I, I work on a, a show which uh, one of its goals, it's, it's an edutainment show. We use many of the same sort of uh, principles that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, funded by the Ford Foundation in partnership with Planned Parenthood. And okay. one of the things that we do is we talk about abortion. Yep. And this is a case where there are certainly many people who believe, you know, me and, and this show and what we're doing, you know, which is effectively, I would consider it in the same category as your AIDS testing right. goal, to be literally asking for the murder of people. Right. So, I mean, I, I do think that there's a real, a serious question when you're saying, like, you know, what are the risks? Like... It, I'm not even so much interested in, in the question of like what are the risks. I think those are obvious. It's more right. who gets to decide what, um, who owns the platforms. You know, part of the reason we can make this show is that, you know, um, people at Hulu are generally pro-abortion. Right. Period. You know. Um, right. So, anyway, I just. Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, at the risk of starting sort of a, a big debate about abortion, you know, I think, no, 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 I think, it's, I think it's reasonable, but I would push back a little to say that, um, you know, I have met people, I don't, I, I don't hold the opinion that they hold, okay? I am uh, 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 for a woman's right to choose. That's my personal position. Um, and I have met people who are pro-life, who are very intelligent people, who have religious uh, reasons for believing what they believe. And I can't say, and, and they do, they do believe that that is murder. They believe that that is murder. Okay, And I can't say with any real, uh, with a straight face, glib or not, that I am right and they are wrong. I have my opinion, and I believe strongly in my opinion. But they also have their opinion, and they believe strongly in their opinion. Similarly, the T 
teaching of evolution in schools, right? I feel very strongly in a certain direction about what my child should be taught about the world. I'm a scientist. I have very uh, little sort of religious uh, uh, impact on my thinking. And, um, but there are people who believe something very different. And I, you know, I, I, I am less quick to uh, sort of label those opinions as necessarily wrong, I would guess, I would say. Okay. I, my statement was not intended to say that, there are, that those opinions are necessarily wrong, although I, I think that they are, but more to say <laughs> who owns... No, I mean, I do think yeah. they are, but, but more to say that the question of who owns the channel right. is, is, the, is the big one, and I think that that's maybe where the risks question that's, is going. Yeah, that seems to me like a really big risk in this sort of I mean, and of course, to them, they would say, well, the risk has already happened. Certain, certain people would say the risk has already happened. You know, look, it's already in the hands of people who are, you know, um, promulgating something, which is... Yeah, so, so I yeah, so, I, you know, my, I guess my, my answer to that would be that um, the, the uh, distribution of resources, be they access to technology or money or something or whatever, is not equal in society. That does not mean that we should not advance knowledge, and that does not mean that we should not learn how, to, how these processes work. The, the risks uh, may exist. Let's say that the distribution is in a certain way such that uh, it's, you know, uh, the technology is in the hands of those who are evil. Okay? And uh, you know, that says something about how we should think about the distribution of resources, not uh, the advancement of technology. I guess that, <clears throat> that's, that would be my sort of position on that. Okay, I want to uh, thank you for a very stimulating talk. Cheers, thank you.